Okay. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Don't Fuck With The Original. <clears throat> I'm your host, Casper. I am your other host, Becky Gremlin. Here to bring you all things spooky on Wednesdays, because... Wednesdays are for podcasts. Sorry about that rough open. We didn't know if this shit was going to start recording. <laughs> it was like... The button. You know that episode struggling. of Spongebob? You know that episode of Spongebob where his lips are really weird? He's like, eh, eh, eh. Of course I do. Eh. That's what was happening. Yep. <laughs> we were like, Guys, we're going to have to try to keep the mood light for tonight. Um, we're we're going to be talking about something absolutely horrific. So, we're on our true crime episode. Um, Which, and... not, I'm not saying not all of our true crime episodes are horrific. Yeah, they're all bad. They're but... all bad, but this one in particular was very, very disturbing. So, I was talking to somebody today, and I was telling them that for some reason, the ones with kids, and we don't do many with kids, um... I mean, I know we've done a few, like, we did our Mothers That Kill episode, um, which I actually really enjoyed that episode, as awful as, and I don't mean enjoyed, like, you guys I know, know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was just a really insightful episode, especially since the Mothers that we did ranged so much, but you guys know, and I've talked about it before, I'm very uncomfortable when it comes to subject matters of kids being murdered specifically and yeah that's why a lot of cases we haven't talked about at all and um like the jonestown one i'm like we we briefly went over that beginning, like the second episode of our podcast we ever did it was very brief though but listening to that recording i it destroyed me i was was very disturbed and yeah, but Dean Coral, who we're talking about tonight, Coral. I know, right? It's can so we just do that every time? To... It I don't would bring mind. some humor in. This. I don't mind because this guy's a fucking asshole, and he got exactly what he's what he deserves: seven shots in the back, butt naked in a hallway. It's exactly the way he deserved to die. <laughs> Fuck that guy, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, I felt like somewhat appropriate because we are in the beautiful month of Halloween and his moniker was known as the Candyman killer, namely because his family owned a candy company and he would pass out candy to the kids around the neighborhood. And that's how one of his later child accomplices gets involved with him. Um, The other thing that's interesting about this story too, is that two of his original victims who later became accomplices are the ones who actually killed him. So a lot of stuff about Dean that we're going to go over tonight is secondhand because Dean was uh, murdered in 1973. Thank fucking God. Because this guy does not even need to rot in jail. He just needs to not exist. He was horrible. Two things in this case that were really bad is how horrible this guy was and how much cops in Houston, Texas during this time did not give a fuck about these kids. And yeah, I said it. They didn't didn't care care. about these kids. This whole case, it was known as the Houston mass murders. This whole entire fucking case was just, I I botched terrible police work. Just terrible. Just not caring not investigating, not even trying. And meanwhile, there's, you know, almost 30 families out there just 
begging to know where their kids are. <laughs> like, you know, the difference with this too, and I also, um, cause I'll, if you guys know, I've mentioned time suck with Dan Cummins a few times and he did a time suck about Dean Coral like really early on. And he brought up a little kind of side note that, uh, connects, <clears throat> uh, Dean and, um, oh gosh, I see his face, Gacy. And my only, so Gacy, you know, they were young boys. They weren't like, well, no, some of them were teenagers, but the difference is, is like Gacy specifically went for like boys that were, except for the last one that worked at the pharmacy, he mainly targeted young boys and guys that were like transients, like yeah. runaways, you know, or living on their own or hitchhikers or what, you know, when he would cruise at night because Gacy ultimately got taken down because the last one he grabbed did did have a family right. a kid that worked at the pharmacy they were like okay where's our kid you know um yeah they wanted to know where their child was but dean was not like that every single one of his victims had families that were wondering where they were it's not like gacy where there was only a couple like every single one of dean's victims so basically this guy just really sucks he's terrible so we're going to try our best to make this as lighthearted, but yeah, this is going to be pretty awful subject matter. Definitely not safe for work. Um, and Definitely not safe for children. At all. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, like even when we did, um, oh, geez, a week. We've done so many. It's like my brain is just not working. Um, oh no, we're already here. <laughs> I know, right? Uh... Oh, God, Grace Bud, the little girl, and wrote the letter. Um, uh, Fish, Albert Fish. Albert Fish, sorry, guys. <laughs> Jeez, once we hit these high numbers, it gets harder and harder to keep up. It's but been... even Albert Fish, it's Instead a of fucking it's been 84 awful, years, that's my new thing now. It's just Bare Naked Ladies been... now. It's one week now. It's awesome. But he's, I love it. Look, I saw Bare Naked Ladies in concert. I fucking always love that I band love and that song, so it never gets old to me. But... Um, he, I lost my train of thought. I'm just thinking about bare naked ladies the whole time. Um, she's over there like, yeah, it's Ben. We don't, fish. we don't <laughs> go, we didn't even go into a lot of detail with him. No. So a lot of the like de detail details of the murders. Yeah. We don't, we're not going to get really descriptive. I'm going to need this thing to yeah. hold on. To we this. might have some difficulties tonight, but we're going to try to. Computer, let's get it together and get, it together. get it together. Get it together. Get it together. <laughs> All right. So, um, Dean Arnold Coral, Coral was an American serial killer who abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered at least 28 teenage boys and young men between 1970 and 1973 in Houston, Texas. He was aided by two teenage accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. Why does every serial killer in the world have to have three names? I, I don't. I don't. It's like an unspoken rule or something. Except for Jeffrey Dahmer. You never hear, like, Jeffrey something Dahmer. No. Or Ted Bundy. Like anyway, I just, li I literally just destroyed my point. So, the crimes were, as Becky said, known as the Houston Mass Murders, came to light after Henley fatally shot Coral. And upon discovery, it was considered the worst example of serial murder in U.S. history. 
So his victims were typically lured with an offer of a party or a lift to a succession of addresses in which he resided between 70 and 73. Basically, he was trying to, he was acting as like an Uber back in the day. Yeah. They would then be restrained either by force or deception. Each was either killed by strangulation or shooting with a 22 caliber pistol. Quarles and a, Cor, Coral and his accomplices buried 17 of their victims in a rented boat shed. Four of the victims were buried in a woodland near Lake Sam Rayburn. One victim was buried on a beach in Jefferson County, and at least six were buried on a beach on Boulevard Peninsula. Oh my god, I almost said Pennsylvania. That's a lot of... Lot. There's a lot of syllables. (laughs) I'm over here like... Boulevard, Pennsylvania. That's a lot of syllables. Brooks and Henley confessed to assisting Coral in several abductions and murders, and both were sentenced to life after their subsequent trials. Coral was also known as the Candyman, which we discussed, but he was also known as the Pied Piper because he and his family had previously owned and operated a candy factory in Houston Heights and he had been known to give free candy to local children. I feel like this is the beginning story to the white vans that have free candy written on the side of them. You all know what I'm talking about. This might have been an early start to that. I mean, obviously he didn't ride around with a white van that said free candy, but that's what he did. Um... Pointing out, because this, I'm not sure if Wikipedia touches on this, but this was something that they said in the Time Suck, that he may have even possibly buried victims behind one of the former candy companies that his mother owned, the family owned, rather. Um, There was a time where workers had said, when the company, when the plant ultimately closed down, that, like, why was he burying, you know, like, he said that he was burying old, tainted candy mm. and i'm like mm. and you cement over it like mm. <clears throat> let me got it i gotta I cement over my candy like oh my god can't god have nobody get into that nasty candy old snickers get out or something or whatever the fuck i don't <laughs> know snickers like, they're gonna run away <laughs> i'm like you're not you when you're hungry who grab oh, snickers right? but not an expired one like it'll run away from who you the fuck yeah, the that, Snickers will grab you. That whole story made no goddamn sense to me, but I guess people were really gullible and fell for it. Did you know that gullible upside down looks like a cat? Yo. Really? I want to talk to you about the time that I read that on a TikTok and turned my phone upside down. Don't make me do it. Does it really look like a cat? It really doesn't. No, don't do it. Don't. Okay. <laughs> I literally was like, because I'm a fucking, fucking moron. Because I'm a fucking idiot, and I fall for stuff like that all the time. I so, actually got somebody yeah, with that because I said, if you say the word gullible really slow, it sounds like green bean. <laughs> and they were like, or no, I. It's if you say green bean really slowly, it sounds like gullible. And though they're green bean. <laughs> Oh God. Okay, that I wouldn't have fallen for. I would have been like, I got my coworker pretty good with that. Wait a fucking minute. Those green don't even bean. <laughs> okay, get it together, Sharon. I'm trying. My glasses are falling <laughs> off anyway. <laughs> All right, so Mr. Dean was born December twenty fourth. He's a he's a Christian baby. Oh God, no. He's a Christmas Eve baby. In 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Woo, that's close. The first child born to Mary Emma Robinson. Um, 
She was born May 9th of 1916 and passed away in May 31st of 2010. And Not Arnold, long, yeah. right? And Ar- Arnold Edwin Coral, <clears throat> he was born February 7th of six, 1916 and passed away April 5th of 2001. Coral's father was very strict with his children, whereas his mother was pretty protective of both of her sons. Their marriage was marred by frequent quarreling and the couple divorced in 46. Four years after the birth of their younger son, Stanley Wayne Coral, Mary subsequently sold the family home <clears throat> and relocated to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arnold had been drafted into the United States Air Force. After the divorce, in order that her sons could remain in contact with their father, Dean Coral was shy, a shy, serious child who rarely socialized with other children, but at the same time displayed concern for the well-being of others. At the age of seven, he suffered an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever, which was not recognized until doctors found him with a heart murmur in 1950. As a result of this diagnosis, he was ordered to avoid PE at school. Coral's parents attempted reconciliation and remarried in 1950, subsequently moving to Pasadena, Texas. However, the reconciliation was short-lived, and in 1953, the couple once again divorced, with the mother again retaining custody of her two sons. Their divorce was granted on amicable grounds, and both boys maintained regular contact with their father. Following the second divorce, Coral's mother married a traveling clock salesman named Jake West. The family moved to the small town of, is it Vidor or Vidor? I've heard it pronounced both ways. I think it's one of those, like, Louisville, Louisville things. (laughs) Like, I've literally heard it. So it's Vidor or Vidor. We're just going to say Vidor. For for sake of argument. Where Coral's half-sister, Joyce, was born 1955. Can I also say how, like, Jake West totally sounds like a made-up name? Kimma, I just say that I also was just like, um, this guy's clearly walked out of Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Like, what the fuck? Clock salesman, Jake West. Like, I'm like, what the fuck? For all your timely needs. That is such a 50s name. Like, 50s, 60s. roundup. Come on, it's time to play. I mean, it really does. It sounds you got like... Jack West, the old clock salesman. It it sounds like a name it straight out of the 50s, 60s. It really does. Like or a legit, like, TV show. Like, come into your door with a suit and hat on, like, touch clocks. Like, do you fuck? need a clock, ma'am? Ma'am? Jake West here with your clocks, ma'am. <laughs> no, but for real, it does. Yeah. His He's name. straight up out of a it... 1950s Western. <laughs> So something, something my dad watches in his retirement in a Lewis Lamore book somewhere. Shake West on Gunsmoke. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that show? Howdy Doody, <laughs> whatever the fuck that was. <laughs> so upon advice from a pecan nut sale, oh, I literally just like a pecan nut. <laughs> Guess what my pecan told me today. I literally straight up was like, upon advice from a pecan nut. <laughs> I asked a pecan nut for advice once. <laughs> he told me. You know what my pecan nut told me? Go get a laugh and a clock from Jake West. <laughs> so upon advice from a pecan nut salesman, Coral's mother and stepfather started a small family candy company named Pecan Prince, initially operating from the garage of their home. From the earliest days of the candy business, Coral worked day and night while still attending school. He and his younger brother were delegated the responsibility of running the candy-making machines and packing the product, which his stepfather sold on his sales route. This route often involved Wes traveling to Houston. I am so sorry. 
um, where much of the product was sold. I just had some pecan. No, I'm just kidding. From 1954 to 1958, Coral attended Vider High School, where he was regarded as a well-behaved student who achieved satisfactory grades. As had been the case in his childhood, he was also considered somewhat of a loner, although he is known to have occasionally dated girls in his teenage years. Same. Oh my god, can we just say that poor Vidor High School, on their Wikipedia, when you look up notable alumni... Oh no. This series, it's two country music singers I've never heard of in my life, so I don't even care anymore. <laughs> but uh, the serial killer Dean Coral was also a well-known student after the revelations that he was responsible for the Houston mass murder. How sad is that if you're like a high school and listed under your notable alumni is a fucking serial killer? Like, like even Ohio State didn't wasn't like yeah is, Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh wow, uh. that's just terrible. His only major interest in high school was the brass band in which he played trombone. So he graduated in the summer of 1958, and shortly thereafter, he and his family moved to the northern outskirts of Houston, so the family candy business could be closer to the city, where the majority of their product was sold. His family opened a new shop, which they named Pecan Prince, in reference to the band name of the family product. In 1960, at the request of his mother, he moved to Indiana to live with his widowed grandmother. <clears throat> During this period of time, he formed a close relationship with a local girl, although he rejected a subsequent marriage proposal she made to him in 1962. Coral, I'm sorry, that's not funny, but she's like, marry me, and he's like, no. I, uh, that's, honestly, when I read that, I was like, okay, that's weird. She like, in the him? 60s, like, what? in the 60s, that wasn't, women didn't do that. No, that was not... It's not a common thing. Brazy like girl, man. Yeah. Coral lived in Indiana for almost two years, but returned to Houston in 62 to help with his family business, which by his this date had moved to Houston Heights. He later moved into an apartment above the, his own apartment above the shop. His mother divorced Jake West in 1963 and opened a new candy business, which she named Coral Candy Company. Her eldest son was appointed vice president of the new family firm with his younger brother Stanley being appointed secretary-treasurer. The same year, one of the teenage male employees of Coral Candy Company complained to Mary West that her son made sexual advances towards him. In response, Coral's mother fired the teenager. Because that's what she did. Yeah, let's not deal with my son possibly, potentially being gay and or a pedophile. Let's, let's just, just fire on. the... Yeah, stack like it didn't happen. Fire the problem. Just get rid of the problem. So, uh, in August, on August 10th of 1964, Coral was drafted into the United States Army and assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana, for training. He was later assigned to Fort Benning, assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, to train as a radio repairman for his permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas. Weird fun fact, totally not relating to him at all, but my dad was stationed at Fort Hood before he went to Vietnam. What is... yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> According to official military records, Coral's period of service in the army was unblemished. However, reportedly he re... however he reportedly hated military service and he applied for a hardship discharge on the grounds that he was needed in his family business. The army granted his request and he was given an honorable discharge on June 11th of 1965 after just 10 months of service. Reportedly. He divulged to some of his close acquaintances that after his release from the army, it was during his period of service that he realized he was homosexual and had experienced his first homosexual encounter. Other acquaintances noted subtle changes in his mannerisms when the company of the teenage males 
after he had completed his service and returned to Houston, which led them to believe he may have been homosexual. And see, again, I feel like that goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier. I I don't like the fact that even still, in <clears throat> regards to saying that he was attracted and acted differently around teenage males that that led them to think that he was homosexual this guy is a pedophile like let's not get it twisted pedophiles are in no way shape or form any part of the lgbtq community at all i don't even care if dean corals lovers victims whatever were men he's a fucking pedophile these were children like he may have initially been homosexual and had an attraction to men but whether or not like i said whether or not these were male victims these were these were children i think y'all going through i'm the list, I'm gay and i'm not going after fucking teenage girls like you it doesn't you you're a pedophile it doesn't matter if you're gay or not it doesn't matter what you like his oldest victim was 20 his youngest victim was 13 <laughs> nope that is a child. A 20-year-old is actually really a child, but... And he died when he was 33. So he was doing this stuff in his late 20s, early 30s to children. Like, no. Like I said, I don't care if they were all male victims. You know, the oldest was 20 and the youngest was 13. They all ranged. There was a few 18-year-olds, a few 19-year-olds, but really the majority of the ages ranged between 13 and 16. That's so when you're disgusting. in your late 20s, when you're in your late 20s, even when they are 18 and 19, that's yo, like 24-year-old dudes trying to date 16 and 17-year-old girls, you're a fucking pedophile. Like stop with that bullshit. And yeah, I'm fucking putting it out there. And you guys know and you know some people that do it i'm sure you do or you may have even been a victim of it yourself when you were that young and thinking oh my god an older guy thinks i'm cute no fuck that that's pedophile behavior now if you're 22 23 trying to go after a 16 year old like no now if you're about like 26 and you're hitting up a 45 year old that's acceptable you're both grown ass that's 100 acceptable that is 110 million percent except i'm over here like <laughs> y'all know who i'm probably talking about it's 110 percent all of my lesbian and lgbtq bisexual pansexual women out there y'all know who i'm talking about because Nothing we're all it. into the same middle-aged women and i know we are you're welcome thank you for that and one of them is dating someone 30 years older than her so guess See? what <laughs> it's fine when it's you're two grown ass consenting adults <laughs> yes when your brains are fully developed and i feel like if you're 19 and 20 you're still not really an adult because to be quite honest with you yeah. i changed more i grew up more from 18 to 21 oh my god yeah. than i did even in my teenage years oh my god yeah because you oh actually my have god, yeah. most of your growing growing mentally yes in those, but between 18 and 22, you are growing so much mentally. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. Anyway, not to go off that tangent. Anyway. Do you want me to go into his. I can go ahead and do this The part. Coral Candy Company. So the Coral. Coral Candy Company. <laughs> so following his honorable discharge from the army, he returned to Houston Heights and resumed the position he had held as vice president of the candy company. His. 
Coral's former stepfather had retained ownership of the family's former candy business, Pecan Prince, following his mother's divorce in 1963. Competition between the two firms were fierce, as had been the case in his teenage years. He increased the number of hours he devoted to the candy business to satisfy an increasing public demand for his family product. In 1965, the Coral Candy Company relocated to 22nd Street, directly across the street from the Helms Elementary School. Coral was known to give free candy to local children. Yeah, how fucking sick is that? He's right across the street from a goddamn elementary school. In particular, teenage boys. As a result of this behavior, he earned himself the nickname Candyman and Pied Piper. The company employed a small workforce, and he was seen to have been behaving flirtatiously towards several teenage male employees. Even his mother witnessed this. His own mother witnessed this. We'll get into this later, but it's funny when you... You'll get into this part about his mom, but I think his mom out of anybody knew deep down within her that her son was a pedophile and she just was never going to accept that, which why the fuck would you? I almost think she could have, I almost think that she would have accepted him being gay more than him being a pedophile. Well, gay more than being a pedophile. Uh, yeah. No, definitely not gay. I don't accept that. I don't tolerate that shit. Yeah, no, definitely a pedophile. So, he did install a pool table at the rear of the candy factory where employees and local youths would congregate. Uh, In 1967, he befriended a 12-year-old David Owen Brooks, then a bespeckled sixth sixth grade student and one of the many children to whom he gave free candy. 12 years old, guys. Okay? Now, I know we're going to get more into In 1967, so how old was he? Okay, so he was born in 39, 28 years old. Yeah, 28 um, years old, but you're friends with a 12-year-old? Guys, and I know we're going to get into more <laughs> that obviously Brooks was an accomplice later, but he literally groomed him. So yeah, that would... Okay, so I'm going to be 28 next year. My nephew is going to be 12 next year. So that would literally be like... I mean, obviously, I'm close to my nephew because he's my fucking nephew. But what if he wasn't? What if he was just a random kid? I wouldn't befriend some random 12-year-old like that. That'd be so weird. Uh, so Brooks initially became one of Coral's many youthful close companions, regularly socializing with him and various teenage boys who congregated at the rear of the candy factory. It should also be known, too, that, because um, there's something else that was mentioned in the time suck, that Brooks's childhood... Because it's not discussed much in this Wikipedia part, but um, he had no like male father figure at all, and he wore very thick glasses all through his entire childhood. So not only did he have like no male figure, no real normal childhood at home, no family life, he got teased relentlessly for his thick, like basically Coke bottle glasses. So this is a young kid who felt like he had nobody. So he meets this this adult man who's giving him attention, basically like a father figure, like an uncle, giving him candy, letting him hang out with with older boys in the back of the candy shop. Like, he thought he had it made hanging out with him. Like, I finally have someone that I can consider, you know, kind of like family. And then, lo and behold, all he was doing the whole time was grooming him. So, uh, he joined Coral on the regular trips he took to South Texas Beach, South Texas beaches and the company of various youths later commented that Coral was the first adult male who did not mock his appearance, which is what Becky was talking about. 
Whenever Brooks told Coral he needed cash, he gave him money, and the youth began to view him as a father figure, just like Becky said. And upon his urging, a sexual relationship gradually developed between the two. Upon Coral's urging, I might add. Uh, beginning in 1969, Coral paid Brooks in cash or with gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on the youth. 14 by this time. He's 14 years old. So, yeah. Child. Child. So Brooks' parents were divorced, and his father lived in Houston, and his mother had relocated to Beaumont. Um, oh, that's, it's Beaumont. Beaumont, okay. Yeah, it's Beaumont, actually. Hill, hill. That's the only one I actually knew how to <laughs> say. Uh, so it was a city 85 miles east of Houston. In 1970, when he was 15, Brooks dropped out of Walter High School, moved to Beaumont, Beaumont to live with his mother. Whenever he visited his father in Houston, he also visited Coral, who allowed him to stay at his apartment if he wished to. Later the same year, Brooks moved back to Houston. By his own later admission, Brooks began regarding Coral's apartment as his second home. By the time Brooks dropped out of high school, Coral's mother and Joyce, his half-sister, had moved to Colorado after the failure of her third marriage and closure of the Coral Candy Company in June of 1968. Although she often talked to her eldest son on the telephone, his mother never saw him again. Can you, can you imagine that? I mean, she knew. That's why I was saying earlier. She knew. When she, she left. She was trying to cut ties. I think she, she, yeah, she left to go to Colorado because she's like, my son is fucked up and there's no saving him. And I know, I know something's going on and I just, I can't deal with it. So I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm out of here. Following the closure of the candy company, he took a job as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company where he tested electrical relay systems and he worked in this employment until the day of his death. So now we're going to get into the murders when they originally started. Um, between 1970 and 73, uh, Carol is... Carol. Jesus Christ. Um, Somebody's got Kate Blanchett on I their mean, mind. You know, you were talking about it earlier, and I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. It's the end. <coughs> Don't die. Uh, you can't die during the podcast. I can't um, die on vacation. It'll never not be funny. It won't. Coral is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. All of his victims, like I mentioned earlier, were uh, aged between 13 and 20. They were all males, uh, majority in their mid-teens. So like I said, a couple of them were like 18, 19, but really the vast majority were about 13 to 16. Most of the victims were abducted from Houston Heights. Uh, at the time, it was a low-income neighborhood in northwest of downtown Houston, most of the abductions, he was assisted by one or both accomplices, Brooks, or later, Elmer Wayne Henley, who came into the picture. He was actually a school, childhood uh, school friend of Brooks. They used to kind of hang out and run around together, and that's how Henley met up with Coral and then basically figured out, it, it took him a while, but basically figured out that Brooks and Coral had some type of relationship going on and that he just thought Brooks was hustling Coral to give him money. Like, yeah, I know I'm letting him do stuff to me, but it's just so I can get money. Um, so several of the victims were actually friends of one or both of the accomplices. So a lot of the kids, Brooks and Henley, actually knew personally. Others were individuals with whom Coral himself became acquainted prior to their abduction and murder. And uh, two other victims, Billy Balch, or Balch, I believe, and uh, Gregory Malley Winkle were former employees of the candy company. I'm over here. Every time you say Brooks, I keep waiting for you to say and done, and I don't I know. know why. 
You just, you're like Brooks, and I'm like, and done. Brooks is making me think of fucking Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I love Brooks and Dunn, too, people. but it's... No, but I fucking love Brooks and Dunn, though. But every time I'm hearing Brooks, I'm right. thinking the Shawshank Redemption. No, I, I... Same. I'm I'm all over the place. Coral's victims... Shawshank and Dunn. And Dunn. And Dunn. Coral's victims were usually lured into either one of the two vehicles he owned. Um. Oh, my God. He did drive a van. Uh, let's... Oh, my God. It... it ha- yep, totally that's what drive, it is. He totally drove a fucking van, so it... It started with him. I'm almost positive the candy and the van started with him. It was a Ford Econoline van in a Plymouth GTX. Uh, he also had a 1969 Chevy Corvette. Um, it was known to have purchased... Oh, so he actually bought that for Brooks, coincidentally. See? Grooming these... Grooming these fucking kids. This enticement was typically an offer to a party or a lift, and the victim would be driven to Coral's house. So yeah, mo- most of the time, it was kind of like Bundy, or I'm sorry, Dahmer, where he would go, hey, I've got some like weed or alcohol. Uh, Gacy also did that a lot too, like come back to my place and party. The reason why I wanted to give the connection between Gacy and Coral is that um, when we get into what he did to his victims as far as handcuffing them, some of the victims... Carl would Coral would do the handcuff trick. And if you guys remember back from our Gacy episode, Gacy used to do that. He would put the handcuffs on the guys and go see how easy it is for me to get out. But then he would put the handcuffs on them and actually make sure he locked it tight and go, hey, you got to get out with the key. And then when they realized they were locked in is when he would, yeah. you know, ultimately murder, you know, torture, rape and murder them. So uh, Gacy said later after he was arrested that he learned about the handcuff trick from Dean Coral's case. So there's the connection with those two. It's it's and it's kind of similar in what they did. Uh at Coral's residence, he would ply the youths with alcohol and drugs. When they passed out, he would trick them um into donning handcuffs, like I said, the handcuff trick, or simply he would grab them by force. He would then strip them naked, tie them to a bed. Um Usually what he would use was a plywood board. Uh, This was also similar to Gacy. There was that board he would tie them to that he had like strung up um, behind their backs. This one was like an actual board that he would like lay them on and handcuff them to like hands to the top, tie the feet at the bottom. And then he would sometimes for days on end, just rape them, beat them, torture them. We don't need to get into all the details. This guy was a fucking piece of shit. Um, and then ultimately he would strangle them. That was usually his means of torture. Sometimes he would use the 22 caliber pistol. Um, and then, like we mentioned earlier, most of the places they were buried was a rented boat shed, the beach on uh, Bolivar or Boliviar Peninsula, the woodland near Lake Sam Rayburn, or the beach in Jefferson County. Um, also, like I mentioned, there's been rumors that there possibly were bodies at the site at the old candy company. I don't have anything to substantiate that. I just, like I said, heard that on the Time Suck podcast. Um, but in several instances, Coral forced his victims to either phone or write to their parents. This is so fucked up. With explanations for their absences and an effort to ally the parents' fears for their son's safety. He is also known to have keep uh, kept keepsakes. So many of these serial killers do this. Usually keys from the victims. During the years... It in is interesting he... to always figure out what they keep. And it's always... It's... Uh, Gacy kept IDs, jewelry, class rings. Uh, Dean kept keys. Uh, 
oh god what was the one guy that was obsessed with feet he would keep shoes yeah it's so interesting he would take like like, the left high heel shoe and just i think it was bruno something i think that guy's name was but he would always keep like the left high heel shoe they just sometimes you just want the left shoes maybe the left one's easier to get i don't know are you left or right So during the years in which he abducted and murdered victims, he often changed addresses. However, until he moved to Pasadena in the spring of 1973, he always lived close or near Houston Heights. So moving around helped a lot because it was able to keep things off his trail. He was never at the same place at one time, usually. Um, Also moving the bodies around. I think ultimately with the rented boat shed, he started to run out of room because most of the, that's where most of the, kind of like what happened with Gacy. I was like Gacy. Ran out of room. First Heaven time, fucking forbid I run out of room for my bodies. I can't, you know, I got 30 of them down here. <laughs> God damn it, I have no more fucking room. fucking many. <laughs> fucking A. Like we said, we try, we're going to try. Some humor. Uh, Coral killed his first known victim, an 18-year-old by the name of Jeffrey Conan, on September 25th of 1970. Uh, Conan vanished while hitchhiking with another student from University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston. He was dropped off alone at the corner of uh, Westheimer Road and South Boss Road near the uptown area of Houston. Coral likely offered Conan a lift to his parents' home, which he evidently accepted. At the time of his disappearance, Coral lived in an apartment on uh, Yorktown Street near that intersection. On August 10th of 73, Brooks led police to Conan's body, which was buried at High Island Beach. Forensic scientists subsequently deduced that the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation in a cloth placed in his mouth the body was fine bare body was found buried beneath a large boulder covered with lime wrapped in plastic bound naked all that terrible stuff about the time of conan's murder brooks interrupted coral in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys whom he had strapped to a four-post bed god Coral promised Brooks a car in return for his silence. Oh my God. Brooks accepted the offer and that's when Coral later bought him the Corvette. Coral later told Brooks that he had killed the two youths and offered them $200 for any boy he could lure to Coral's apartment. Well, I mean, if I'm getting a Corvette out of it. Yeah. That's what I wanted. <laughs> totally kidding. That's On so December fucked 13th, up. 1970. God, this guy. He lured 14-year-old... Spring Branch youths named James Glass and Danny Yates. Yo, for a hot second, I was like, this motherfucker's name is Spring Branch? I, mean, I really hope that's not that <laughs> kid's name. God damn it. You have that name and this fucking happened to you? I mean, like, I'm sorry, but that is... That's awful. Awful. His name was not Spring but Branch. But no. No. It was James Glass and Danny Yates. Uh, James and Glass Quakes. and uh, Jake West close? I know. Another one of those fucking... George names. Glass. Can George Glass totally do this? I totally thought the same. You did? Thing. Of course I did. Fucking bridesmaids. God seen damn it. so many damn times. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Go on. I've seen it way too many times. That's why I was like, of course I thought the same. As soon as you said that, I was like, George I, um, Glass. God, I read it and I was like, don't say George Glass. <laughs> don't. It's say bad. Say George Glass. Don't. Uh, Glass is an acquaintance of Brooks. Um, you know, like we mentioned, some of the victims knew Brooks and Henley. Um, both youths were tied to opposite sides of the board where they were raped, strangled, buried in the boat shed uh, November 17th. 
is when it was rented. Um, an electrical cord with alligator. Oh my god, I don't want to read any more of that. Six weeks after yeah, the like, double board, we can. I'm stop. sorry. I'm sorry, we guys. Can I told you a lot of that. I'm gonna like skip over because I just can't because this guy's terrible. Um, six weeks after the double murder of Glass and Yates on January 30th of 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered two teenage brothers. This one literally was so hard for me to take because of what he did to these two boys. He basically made them like beat the shit out of themselves after raping and torturing them for days. He told them that if they beat each other up, he'll let one of them go and basically made these two brothers just beat the shit out of each other. It just, he was, Oh my God, this fucking guy is just literally the worst person ever and i'm so glad he's dead uh between march and may of 1971 coral abducted and killed three victims all of whom lived in houston heights all of whom were buried toward the rear of the rented boat shed in each of these abductions brooks is known to have been a participant one of the three victims 15 year old randall harvey was last seen by his family on the afternoon of march 9th cycling towards oak forest where he worked part-time at a gas station attendant Harvey was driven to Coral's Magnum or Magum Road apartment where he was killed uh, by, with a 22 caliber, caliber gun. The other two victims, 13-year-old David Hilgist and 16-year-old... Hilligeist. Oh, Hilligeist, sorry. Didn't see all the extra eyes. Um, There's only like seven in that word, so... 16-year-old... <laughs> Literally the word Winkle. Mississippi. I was like, oh my God, there's so many eyes. I'm sorry, I missed... The eighth one. <laughs> were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29th, 1971. As had been the case with parents of other victims, both sets of parents launched a frantic, frantic search for their sons. One of the youths who voluntarily offered to distribute posters had printed an offering of a monetary reward for information leading to the boy's whereabouts was of all things 15-year-old Elmer Henley. He was actually a friend of Hillegeist. The youth pinned the reward posters around the heights and attempted to reassure his parents that there may be an innocent explanation for his absence. God. Can you imagine being that young and that fucking brainwashed? I mean, because you're just like, I, I'm I'm so in it with this guy. Also, there's another thing that should be mentioned because we'll get into this later. Um, Coral and Henley were thought to... So, or I'm sorry, Brooks and Henley... Coral made this story up and obviously we know that um, child sex trafficking rings are a real thing, but he was telling these boys originally that he wasn't going to kill the boys that he wanted them to get for them, that he was going to turn them into this sex trafficking ring that he worked for. Like that makes it any fucking better. But he said, I get paid for giving this sex trafficking ring out of Houston, Texas boys. So every boy that you guys give me, I'll give you a cut of the money. And then that's when later on they end up finding out that that was bullshit. Possibly bullshit, but really there, ultimately it's really bullshit. And yeah, and that he was actually raping and murdering these these kids themselves and they were just fucking a part of it so on the 17 on august 17 1971 coral and brooks encountered a 17 year old acquaintance of brooks named reuben watson haney uh he worked at a movie theater in houston he was walking home and brooks persuaded haney to attend a party at an address coral had moved to on san philippi street i believe the previous month Haney agreed and was taken to Coral's home where he was murdered and buried in the boat shed. 
uh, September of 71, Coral moved to another apartment in the Heights. Brooks later stated that he had assisted Coral in the abduction and murder of two youths during this time when Coral resided at this address, including one youth who was killed just before uh, Henley came into the picture. In his confession, Brooks stated that the youth killed immediately prior to Henley's involvement in the murders was abducted from the Heights and kept alive for approximately four days. The identity of these two victims still remains unknown. In the winter of 71, Brooks introduced Henley <clears throat> to Coral. Henley likely <coughs> was lured to Carl's or Coral's address as an intended victim. However, Dean evidently decided the youth would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee, which was $200, for any boy he could lure into the apartment, like I mentioned earlier, a part of this slavery ring out of, oh, I'm sorry, Dallas, Texas, not Houston. That was Houston Heights. Um, Henley later stated that for several months, he ignored Coral's offer. However, in early 1972, he decided to accept the offer because he and his family were in dire financial circumstances. That's so fucking sad. That he's wanting to do it to help his family. Well, again, it's, you know, a broken home, parents divorced, single mom. Henley had to basically drop out of school to help take care of his mom and his family. And he's young. And here's this guy offering him, you know, I don't have to work a try to find a legitimate job that pays shit. I just have to give this guy. And I think part of them, too, thought we don't want to be victims either. Right. That's true. So. Yeah. I'm not. He probably figured maybe if he didn't actually do it, I think somewhere in their brain they thought, well, if we're just bringing them to him and we're not actually murdering them, right? The only time they were ever involved, and we'll get into this. I mean, sometimes they did hold victims down, so they. I I'm not diminishing their involvement, but I'm just saying I just want people to to realize that Henley and Brooks were victims too. They were the they were early victims right. of Dean. They really were. Um, so yeah, by seventy two, he needed to. He felt like he needed to do it to help his family. Uh, Henley said the first abduction he participated in occurred during the time Dean resided at nine two five Schroeder Street uh, in February of nineteen seventy two. Brooks later claimed that Henley became involved in the abductions while Coral resided at the address he occupied immediately prior. If Henley's statement is to be believed, the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March of 72. In the statement Henley gave to police following the arrest, the youth stated that he and Coral picked up a boy at the corner of 11th and Studwood, lured him to the home on the promise of smoking marijuana at the residence using a ruse he and Coral had prepared. They did the handcuff trick, hid the key in the back pocket, duped the youth uh, by binding and gagging him. Uh, later, Henley, Henley left, thinking he was going to sell him to the ring. And uh, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, but this victim still remains unknown as well. We don't know who this was. Uh, one month later, March 24th of 72, Henley Brooks and Coral encountered an 18-year-old acquaintance of Henley's named Frank Aguiar, I believe. He was leaving a restaurant on Yale Street where he worked. Henley called Aguiar over to Coral's van and invited him to drink beer and smoke marijuana with them at the apartment. Aguiar agreed and he followed the trio in his Rambler. Inside Coral's house, Aguiar smoked marijuana with the trio before picking up the handcuffs Coral had left on the table. In response, Coral pounced on him, pushed him back, and handcuffed his hands behind his back. Henley later claimed that he had not known if Coral's true intentions towards Aguiar 
when he had persuaded him to accompany him to Coral's home. In a 2010 interview, he claimed to have attempted to persuade Coral not to assault and kill Aguiar once he and Brooks had bound and gagged the youth. However, Coral refused, informing Henley that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting, and that he intended to do the same to Aguiar. Henley subsequently assisted Coral and Brooks in Aguiar's burial at High Island Beach. Despite the revelations that Coral was in reality killing the boys he and Brooks had, had assisted in abducting, Henley nonetheless became an active participant in the abductions and murders. Henley nonetheless, or sorry, one month later, am I about to read this all over again? One month <laughs> she, later. She straight up was like, I'm going to repeat that. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> On April 20th, he assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction of another youth, 17-year-old Mark Scott. Great Scott of creative life itself. I'm so sorry, I Jesus. I thank you. Oh, I had to throw in some Orphan Black. I appreciate that so much. You're welcome. Uh, again, another acquaintance of Henley and Brooks. Um, oh, it's a, yeah, oh God. Uh, he was grabbed by force by them against, uh, and fought furiously against Coral's attempts to restrain him. Uh, he even attempted to stab them with a knife. Uh, Scott saw Henley pointing the gun at him. He just gave up. Scott was tied to the torture board. Had the same fate as Aguiar and all of the other victims. And after he was murdered, he was buried at High Island Beach as well. <clears throat> Brooks stated that Henley, I'm sorry, yeah, Brooks stated Henley was especially sadistic in his participation in the murders committed at Schuler Street. Before Coral vacated the address on June 26th, Henley had assisted him and Brooks in the abduction and murder of two youths by the name of Billy Balch or Balch and Johnny DeLome. In Brooks' confession, he stated that both youths were tied to Coral's bed, and after their torture and rape, Henley manually strangled Balch, then shouted, hey, Johnny, and shot DeLome in the head. DeLome then pleaded with Henley before he was strangled. Both youths were buried at High Island Beach. Um, now, of course, that's just Brooks's account, but when you, I know on the time suck at the end of it, Dan read Brooks and Henley's uh, confessions and I think Brooks just even though he knew what he was doing I think he knew what he was doing was wrong he still participated and I think Henley on the other hand knew what he was doing was wrong but he just he just became hard and cold I just think at that point yeah I think his conscience just, just left he him. just had no conscience I think Brooks still did but like Henley just and again this whole thing with DeLome and, and Balch, we, we still don't know. We still don't right. know. We're going only by what Brooks said, and Henley gave a different account, and Dean Coral's dead, so we don't, we don't really know. Um, during the time Dean resided at Schuler Street, the trio lured a 19-year-old by the name of Billy uh, Ridinger, or Ridinger into the house. Uh, Billy was tied to the plywood board. Again, same M.O. by Dean. Brooks later claimed that Dean... Uh, uh, allowed Reidegger to be released and the youth was allowed to leave the residence. On another occasion during the time Coral resided at Schuler Street, Henley knocked Brooks unconscious as he entered the house. Coral then tied Brooks to his bed and assaulted him repeatedly before releasing him. Despite the assault, Brooks continued to assist Coral in the abductions of the victims. That's when you know you're, you're just... You have, I mean... <clears throat> 
what do you do? I don't, I mean, I don't even, I just, this is why I wish there just could have been some sympathy to these, especially Brooks, like 12 years old when he started being groomed by him. Like, what do you fucking do at this point? After vacating the Shuler Street resident, Coral, residence, Coral moved to an apartment at Westcott Towers where the summer of 72, he is known to have killed a further two victims. The first of these was 17-year-old Stephen Sickman. He was last seen at the party held in the Heights shortly before midnight on July 19th. Uh, he was savagely bludgeoned by a blunt ob object, strangled and buried in the boat shed. One month later, on August 21st, 19-year-old Roy Bunton was abducted while walking to his job as an assistant in a Houston shoe store. He was gagged with a towel uh, that was taped to his mouth, shot twice in the head, and buried at the boat shed. Uh, neither youth was named by either Brooks or Henley as being a victim of Coral, but both youths were only identified as victims. They weren't identified as victims until uh, 2011. Damn. On October 2nd of 1972, Henley and Brooks encountered two Heights teenagers named Wally J. Simono or Simono and uh, Richard Hembree. They were walking to Hembree's home. Simono and Hembree were enticed into Brooks' Corvette and driven to Coral's Westcott Towers apartment. That evening, uh, Simono is known to have phoned his mom and to have shouted the word mama into the receiver before the connection was terminated. The following morning, Henry was accidentally shot by Henley with the bullet <clears throat> exiting through his neck. Several hours later, both youths were strangled and were buried in a common grave inside the boat shed, directly above the bodies of Glass and Yates. Sometimes, sometime in the following month, 18-year-old Oak Forest... Oh my God, I did it again. I was like, that's a terrible name, too. What the <laughs> Spring fuck? Branch at Oak Forest. I was like, this is, these are terrible fucking names. It's a Texan thing? Like, what? Do you just name your children? fuck. Like, trees? After foliage, just... <laughs> Spring Branch and Oak Forest. This one's Maple Leaf. Oh, my God. Like, this is so terrible. They're I'm, Canadian. I'm so sorry, I'm guys. Sorry, I'm just kidding. I love so Canada. Sorry. I was like, I did it again. What the fuck? Is up with these names. Uh, no, the kid Oops, was from I... Oak Forest. You know what's really funny though is his middle, his last name is Branch. It is. So, but it's not Maple. Uh, it's Willard Branch or Spring. He disappeared while hitchhiking <clears throat> from Mount Pleasant to Houston. His gagged and emasculated body, if you don't know what emasculated means, look it up, was buried in the boat shed on November 15th, 19 year old Heights youth named Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth. If you don't know what a phone booth is, look it up. Uh, oh Kepner my god. If you don't know <laughs> what a phone booth is, Kepner get a fucking Google account. <laughs> I just had to say that because you know there's a generation out there that don't fucking know what phone booths are. And that makes me sad and old. Altogether, at least 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November of 1972. Five of whom were buried at High Island Beach, five inside the boat shed. On January 20th of 1973... Dean Coral moved to an address on Wirt Road in the Spring Branch District of Houston. Within two weeks of moving there, he killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Lyles was known by both Coral and Brooks. He had lived on Antoine Drive, the same street Brooks resided at. On March 7th, Coral vacated his Wirt Road apartment, moved to 2020 Lamar Drive, um, an address his father had vacated in Pasadena. No known victims were killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973. Coral is known to have suffered from a hydrocell in 1973, <coughs> and this may have contributed to this period of inactivity. Um, 
Hydrocell is something that affects men's testicles, so you can uh, lovingly look that up as well. Henley had, you know, should have just tore his testicles off, but anyway. Henley had temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant in an attempt, apparent attempt, to distance himself from Coral. These facts may account for this sudden lull in killings. You know, maybe they just, I don't know, conscience or just didn't want to do it anymore. I think this was kind of, because this is kind of leading up ultimately to what happens when Henley's like, I just can't fucking deal with this anymore <laughs> and I'm going to kill this motherfucker. He's hitting a breaking point. Because, yeah, because in 1973 is when shit hits the fan and he's done. So I think that's why. This was definitely leading up to that point when, because this makes a lot of sense that Henley was trying to distance himself because, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Nonetheless, from June, Coral's rate of killings increased dramatically, and both Henley and Brooks later testified to the increase in the level of brutality of the murders committed while Coral resided at Lamar Drive. Henley later compared the acceleration and the frequency of killings and the increase in the brutality exhibited by him towards his victims to being like a bloodlust, adding that he and Brooks would instinctively know when Dean was to announce that he needed to do a new boy due to the fact that he would appear restless, smoking cigarettes, and making reflex movements. You know, many murderers have said that it's literally like a drug Withdrawal. addiction. Yeah. It's like a drug addiction. <clears throat> and if they can't, if they can't get their next fix literally it's like a withdrawal that's exactly the way they describe it on june 4th henley and dean abducted 15 year old william ray lawrence the youth was last seen alive by his dad on 31st street after three days the, of that's definitely not a miracle torture, on that street no <laughs> after torture and abuse he was strangled and buried at lake sam rayburn less than two weeks later 20 year old raymond stanley blackburn was abducted strangled and buried at the same lake on July 6, 1973, Henley began attending classes at Coach's Driving School in Bel Air, where he became acquainted with Homer Luis Garcia, who was 15. The following day, Garcia phoned his mom to say he was spending the night with a friend. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Coral's bathtub before he was buried at the same lake. Five days later, on July 12, 17-year-old John Sellers of Orange County was found bound, shot to death, and buried at High Island Beach. On July 1973, after Brooks married his pregnant fiance, Henley temporarily became Coral's sole procurer of victims, assisting in the abduction and murder of three Heights youths <clears throat> between July 19th and 25th. Henley claimed that these three abductions were the only three that occurred after becoming an accomplice to Dean and which Brooks was not a participant. One of these three victims, 15-year-old Michael Bouch, who was the brother of the previous victim, Dahmer, is that kind of sounding familiar? Was last seen by his family on July 19th after he was to get a haircut. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. The other two victims, Charles, I mean, this is just so fucked up. He went back and got the brother. Like, what? Charles Cobble and Marty Ray Jones, the other two victims, were abducted on July 25th. Uh, they were buried in the boat shed after they were murdered. On August 3rd, 1973, and this is five days before this motherfucker is gone. Coral killed his last victim, a 13-year-old. I know, I know. Can we please just the angels sing? God, about sick of this Part motherfucker. the herald angels sing. Glory to Dean Coral's death. Thank you. I needed that after Peace this. Peace I really Earth. needed that. I really needed that. Because it is for real. <laughs> I can't stand this motherfucker after this. On August 3rd, 73, 
Uh, yep, killed his last victim. It was James Stanton. I am so sorry if it's I probably butchered this. Probably, yeah. I was going to say Dre Mala. Dre Mala. We'll go with Dre Mala. Louisville, Louisville. We'll go with Dre Mala. Dre Mala. He was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike in Pasadena, driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty bottle empty bottles to resell. At Coral's home, he was yeah all the all the, all the wonderful shit. lovely things that he does to his victims. Um, and then he was buried in the boat shed. Brooks later described him as a small blonde boy for whom he had bought a pizza and spent forty five minutes with him before he attacked him. So we get to August 8th of 1973, the day of reckoning. Um, that evening before, though... I was going to say, do you uh, want me to do it, or do you want to read this part since you know it's justice? <laughs> I would I would particularly like to read this part, if you, you don't mind. Right ahead. Because I feel like I just need this. Hearts <laughs> up! I need... I fucking That's why, this. exactly why I was like, do you want to just do this? Because I feel like at this point, you're like, justice is served! Like, I just fucking need this so bad. <laughs> Like, I fucking hate this guy like, so Like, literally much. after 45 minutes of I spit on your grave where I was like, I need the end of this movie! Yeah, you just need it. You need there to be some off. type of retribution at the end, please. <laughs> so the night before, Henley, aged 17 at the time, invited 19-year-old Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Dean's Pasadena residence. Curley, who was a casual acquaintance of Dean who was intended to be his next victim, accepted the offer, of course. Brooks was not present at the time. The two youths arrived at Coral's house, where they sniffed paint, drank alcohol, until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches. Henley and Curly then drove back to Houston Heights, where Curly parked his vehicle close to Henley's home. Henley exited the vehicle, and hearing commotion across the street emanating from the home of his 15-year-old friend, Rhonda Louise Williams, he walked towards the home. Williams had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and accepted Henley's invitation to join himself and Curly at Coral's home. Good Lord. Too much. (laughs) Williams climbed into the back seat of Curly's Volkswagen. The trio then drove toward Dean's Pasadena residence. At approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973, Henley and Curly, accompanied by Williams, returned to Dean's residence. Dean was furious that Henley brought a girl into his house telling him in private that he had ruined everything. Heaven forbid a woman enter. Henley explained that Williams had argued with her father that evening and she did not wish to return home. Dean calmed down, offered the trio beer and marijuana. The three teenagers began to drink, smoke marijuana with Henley and Curly, sniffing paint as Dean watched them intently. After approximately two hours, all three teens passed out. Henley awoke to find himself laying upon his stomach and Dean snapping handcuffs onto his wrist. His mouth had been bound shut and his ankles been bound together. Curly and Williams lay beside him, securely bound with nylon rope, gagged with adhesive tape and lying face down, and Curly was the only one who had been stripped naked. Noting Henley had awoken, Dean removed the gag from his mouth. Henley protested in vain against his actions, whereupon Coral reiterated that he was angry with him for bringing a girl into his house and that he was going to kill all three teenagers after he had assaulted and tortured Curly, initially stating, man, you blew it bringing that girl, before he shouted, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. He then repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest before lifting Henley to his feet, dragging him into the kitchen and placing a 22 caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. 
This Hinley literally sounds like a movie. Like it doesn't even. It doesn't even sound like this. It doesn't even sound like this happened this in nineteen seventy three. Henley calmed calmed Dean down, promising to participate in the torture and murder if he would of both of them if uh, Coral would release him. After approximately thirty minutes of this, Coral agreed and untied Henley, then carried Curly and Williams to the bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of his torture board. Curly on his stomach and Williams on her back. Dean handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Williams' clothes, insisting that he rape and kill Curly, and then Henley, Henley would do likewise to Williams. Henley began cutting away Williams' clothes as uh, Dean undressed and began to assault and torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened by this point. Curly, Curly was uh, shouting and writhing as Williams, whose gag Henley had removed, lifted her head, asked Henley, is this real? To which he said, yes. And Williams asked him, are you going to do anything about it? Henley asked Coral whether he might take Williams into another room. Dean ignored him and Henley then grabbed Dean's pistol and said, you've done far, you've gone far enough, Dean. As Coral clambered off Curly, Henley elaborated, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. Coral approached Henley saying, kill me, Wayne. Yeah. Henley stepped, <laughs> Well, all right. Look. <laughs> I'm one of these motherfuckers where if you say kill me, I'm I'm killing you. Uh, Coral approached Henley. Uh, kill me, Wayne. Henley stepped back a few paces as Coral continued to advance upon him, shouting, you won't do it. Henley then fired at Dean, hitting him straight in the forehead, but because it failed to pen penetrate his skull. This is what sounds like a fucking movie. Right? Is literally this guy is butt naked coming at you saying you ain't going to do shit. And you shoot him in the fucking head, and because the bullet didn't penetrate his skull, he still comes walking at you. It's like, what the fuck is happening right now? This, um, this motherfucker is a straight up demon. He kept firing <laughs> straight up, straight up fucking demon. Uh, he kept firing on him another two rounds that hit him in the left shoulder. That's when Dean was like, fuck this, ran out of the room, hit the wall in the hallway, and Dean fired three additional bullets into his back and the back of his shoulder as Coral slid down the wall into the hallway outside the room where the two teenagers were still bound. Dean was uh, found, or Dean died where he fell, his naked body lying towards the wall. Oh, the picture of him lying there naked dead, it's just, it just fills me with joy. Henley would later, recall, it really does, because this guy's a fucking scumbag. Henley would later recall that having shot... <clears throat> So Henley, Sorry, I almost lost my place. Oh, oh you're fine. Yeah. We've been having some slight technical difficulties tonight because the computer... You literally just sounded like you were falling. I'm sorry. <laughs> because I lost my place and I thought I was like, oh my god, it's going to take me 12,000 years it's, to get back it's to It's been. I was like, no. Um, so Henley would later recall that having shot Dean, the sole moment thought in his mind... In the moments immediately after was that Dean would have been proud of the way he had behaved during the confrontation, adding that he had been training him to react quickly and forcefully, and that is exactly what he had done. Still in his grasp, so even after he shot him dead. Up. Like, oh, yeah, he'd have been proud of me. After he shot Dean, Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board gave the three teenagers their clothes to get dressed and discuss what action should be taken. Henley suggested to Curly and Williams that they should simply just leave, to which Curly replied, no, we need to call the police. Henley agreed, looked up the number to the Pasadena Police Department in Coral's telephone directory. 
And at 8.24 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973, he placed the call to them. And his call went answered by an operator uh, by the name of Velma Lines. And the call, Henley just blurted <clears> out, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Henley gave That'll him the get address. him there real fast. He gave him the address, 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena. As Curly Williams and Henley waited upon uh, the porch for the police to arrive, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had done that four or five times. Minutes later, a patrol car arrived. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house, and the officer noted the 22 caliber pistol on the driveway. Henley told the officer that he was the individual who made the call and indicated that Dean's body was inside the house. After confiscating the pistol and, and placing Henley, Williams, and Curley inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Dean's body inside the hallway. <clears throat> the officer returned to the car and read Henley his Miranda rights. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I just have to get this off my chest. Curley later told detectives that before the police officer had arrived at Lamar Drive, Henley had informed him, if you, if you weren't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. Yep. It's been. <laughs> yeah. Just brainwash, man. So, in custody, Henley initially was questioned in relation to the killing of Dean. He recounted the events of the previous evening and that morning, explaining he had shot in him in self-defense. The statements given by Curly and Williams corroborated Henley's account. The detective questioning Henley believed he in indeed acted in self-defense. When questioned regarding his claim that as Dean had threatened him in the morning, he had shouted he had killed several boys. Henley explained that for almost three years, he and Brooks had helped procure teenage boys, some of whom had their own friends, for Dean, who had raped and murdered them. Henley gave a verbal statement stating he initially believed the boys he had abducted were to be sold into a Dallas-based organization for the homosexual acts, sodomy, and maybe later killing. But soon learned that Dean himself was, the killing, was killing the victims procured. Henley admitted he had assisted Dean in several abductions and murders and he had actively participated in the torture and mutilation of six or eight victims prior to their murder. Most victims had been buried in a southwest Houston boat shed, with others buried at Lake Sam, Lake Sam Rayburn and the High Island Beach. Dean paid up to 200 for each victim here Brooks was able to lure to the apartment. <clears throat> Police initially were skeptical of Henley's claims, assuming the sole homicide of the case was that of Dean, which they had ascribed to being the result of drug-fueled fist cuffs that had turned deadly. Henley was quite insistent, however, and upon his recalling the names of three boys, Cobble, Hillegeist, and Jones, whom he stated he and Brooks had procured for Dean, the police accepted that there was something to his claims, as all three teenagers were listed as missing at the Houston... Missing. Missing at the Houston Police Department. They were missing. They were missing and missing. <laughs> they were missing. Hillegeist had been reported missing in the summer of 71. The other two boys had been missing for just a couple weeks. Moreover, the floor of the room where the three teenagers had been tied was covered in thick plastic sheeting. Police also found a plywood torture board measuring 8 by 3 feet with handcuffs attached to nylon rope at two corners and nylon ropes to the other two. Also found at Dean's address was a large hunting knife, rolls of clear plastic of the same type used to cover the floor, a portable radio rig to a pair of dry cells to give increased volume, an electric motor with loose wires attached, eight pairs of handcuffs, a number of dildos, thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. Jesus Christ. Corals Ford in... in Econoline. Econoline van. I just... Ford van. Parked yeah, in the driveway conveyed a similar impression. The rear windows of the van were sealed by the opaque blue curtains. In the rear of the vehicle, police found a coil of rope, 
a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides. Jesus. Uh, the pegboard walls inside of the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. Another wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides were found in Dean's backyard. Inside the crate were strands of several human hairs. This also, so if you guys ever look up the toolbox murders that happened in Truth or Consequence, uh, New Mexico, are fucking disgusting. Like, I don't think we'll ever probably do an episode about that because I cannot handle that case. Everything I've ever read about that case it's rough. Has, has, it makes my skin crawl and it is so similar to what happened in this case where this guy was basically doing this to women and had this, like, whole entire tool shed of just, of torture and death. And it was just, it was just awful. It was just, it was just absolutely disgusting. This guy got his daughter involved. It was just, Ugh. that case is absolute it makes my skin crawl we if you guys know about it great if you don't google it we more than 99 percent likely will never do an episode about it because i fucking hate that case it's gross it's so horrible um so henley agreed to accompany police to dean's boat shed in southwest houston where he claimed the bodies of most of the victims could be found inside of the boat shed police found a stolen half-stripped car a child's bike a large iron drum Water containers, two sacks of lime, and a large plastic bag full of teenage boys' clothing. Two prison trustees began digging through the soft, shell-crushed earth of the boat shed and soon discovered the body of a young, blonde-haired teenage boy lying on his side, encased in clear plastic and buried beneath a layer of lime. Police continued excavating through the earth of the shed, unearthing the remains of more victims in varying, varying stages of decomposition. Most of the bodies found were wrapped in thick, clear plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot, strangled... The ligature still wrapped tightly around their necks. This next paragraph is really fucked up. I don't even know if you want yeah, to read I, all of that. I'm, I'm going to kind of skim over this one. Yeah, th- um, this goes into a lot so of detail. Most of the of victims, of course, were victims. found sodomized. We all know yeah, that happened. We know that. Uh, sexual torture. Uh, yep. We know about the bou- the the gags. The cloth gags. Yeah, and all that um, stuff. So, yeah. The investigation was discontinued until the next day. Yeah, there were basically... So there were eight eight bodies in total found at the boat shed. Accompanied by his father, Brooks presented himself at the, headqu- the police headquarters on the evening of August 8th and gave a statement in which he denied any participation in the murders, but admitted to having known that Dean had raped and killed two youths in 1970. On the morning of August 9th, Henley gave a full written statement detailing his and Brooks' involvement with Dean in the abduction and murder of numerous youths. In this confession, Henley readily admitted to having personally killed approximately nine and to have assisted Dean in the strangulation of others. He stated only three abductions and murders Brooks had not assisted him and Dean with were committed in the summer of 73. That afternoon, Henley accompanied police to the lake where he, Brooks, and Dean had buried four... Okay, I said Brooks and Dean, and I fucked myself up, because I literally was like, Brooks and Dunn. <laughs> it's You're like, fuck, no. <laughs> um, Got it. Had buried four victims killed that year. Two additional bodies were found in shallow lime-soaked graves located close to a dirt road. Inside the lakeside, inside the lakeside log cabin owned by Coral's family, police found a second plywood torture board, rolls of plastic sheeting, shovels, and a sack of lime. Police found nine additional bodies in the boat shed on August 9th. These bodies were recovered between 12.05 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. And all were in advanced stages of decomposition. Oh, no. Okay, so that's 16 bodies now yep. total in the boat shed. Um, 
One of the bodies unearthed was sexually mutilated. Another victim unearthed had several fractured ribs. The 13th of 14 bodies unearthed bore identification cards naming the victims as Donald and Jerry Waldrop. Yeah, the two brothers I told you guys about. Uh, Brooks gave a full con- con- concession. Lord. Uh, confession on the evening of August 9th, admitting to being present at several killings and assisting in several burials, although he continued to deny any direct participation in the murders. In reference to the torture board upon which Coral had restrained and tortured his victims, Brooks stated, Once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over, but the crowd, the cr- shouting and the crying. He agreed to accompany police to Highland Beach to assist in the search for the bodies of the victims. On August 10th of 1973, Henley again accompanied police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where two more bodies were found buried just 10 feet apart. As with the two bodies found the previous day, both victims were tortured and severely beaten. That afternoon, Henley and Brooks accompanied police to High Island Beach, leading police to the shallow graves of two victims. On August 13th, Henley and Brooks again accompanied police to High Island Beach, where four more bodies were found, making a total of 27 victims at the point. The worst killing spree in American history at that time. Until Casey. Here's Casey. <laughs> he just bopped his head in. I feel like I should say something here. Like five years later, here's Casey. <laughs> Motherfuckers. <laughs> sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> I had to do something funny. I had to pop something here? funny in there. Like, oh my god. I had to. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Uh, Henley initially, Henley on the actually on Sebastian, that there were two more bodies to be found inside the boat shed, and that the bodies of two more boys had been buried at High Island Beach in '72. At the time, the killing spree was the worst case of serial murder. Oh, in terms of number of victims in the United States, exceeding the 25 attributed to Juan Corona. Too soon. Who had been arrested in California soon, in 1970. He actually died last year and that fucked up. Juan Corona did. He missed it. Died. He, he missed it. That um, fucking close. Who had been arrested? You know it would have been? Oh my god, no. That's so terrible. <laughs> if he would have died this year but from Corona. Corona died of Corona. <laughs> who had been? Mass murderer Corona. Dies corona. from Corona. Dies from mass murderer Corona. <laughs> This is fucking terrible. Oh my god. This is so fucking bad. Mass murderer Corona. Actually, <laughs> technically, it's serial killer Corona dies of mass murdering Corona. There you go. Making headlines. Headline. Who had been arrested in California for tw- killing 25 men? The macabre record number known of victims attributed to a single murder case set by Dean and his accomplices was only surpassed by 78. By Gacy, who murdered 33 boys and young men who admitted to being influenced by the Houston mass murders case. Like we said, the families of cuff trick. Families of Coral's victims were highly critical of the police department, which had been quick to list the missing boys as runaways. This is sickening. Who had not been considered worthy of major investigation. You know what? Fuck you. The families of the murdered youths asserted that the police should have been noted as an should have noted an insidious trend in the pattern of disappearances of teenage boys from the Heights neighborhood. It's kind of true. This was three fucking years. 
1970 to 1973 and you don't wonder what the fuck is happening to over 20 goddamn teenage boys they're all runaways in three years they're all fucking runaways yeah like yeah i know <laughs> like yeah right of course yeah <laughs> case that's closed what, done that's what I some coffee thought. and donuts guys like, that's what i would have thought oh, um so being dismissive of the insistence that their sons had no reason to run away from home, Everett Waldrop and the father of Donald and Jerry Waldrop complained that shortly after his sons disappeared, he had informed the police an acquaintance had observed Dean burying what appeared to be bodies at his boat shed. In response, the police performed a perfunctory, perfunctory yes. search around the boat shed before dismissing their parts as a hoax. So they didn't go in the boat shed. They didn't try to get any type of warrant to go in the boat shed. They just simply walked around it and were like, yeah, nothing happened. One does not simply. Um, Waldrop stated that on one occasion when he visited the police department, the, the chief had simply told him, why are you down here? You know your boys are runaways. The mother of Gregory... Mally Winkle stated, you don't run away from home with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. Yeah. By May of 1974, 21 of his victims had been identified, with all but four of the youths having either lived in or had close connections to Houston Heights. Two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and 1985, one of whom, Richard Kepner, also lived in Houston Heights, and the other youth, Willard Branch, lived in the Oak Forest District of Houston. Yeah, I, I just still for the life of me. And it's, and Mr. Waldrop, the two brothers' father, it wasn't that he would just occasionally visit. They kind of glossed over this a little bit in Wikipedia. It wasn't that he would just occasionally visit the Houston Police Department. He would literally camp out at the Houston Police Department. He would get there in the morning before the chief was ever even there. And every single time this chief would go, you know your kids just ran away. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Why would I be here every goddamn day? And like that one mom said, why would he just run away with a bathing suit on? Okay. <laughs> I was like, I there? think so. I was like, we're almost there. We're almost there. Um, so we're getting into the indictment uh, period when on August 13th, a grand jury convened in Harris County to hear evidence against Henley and Brooks. The first two witnesses to testify were Williams and Curley who stated the events of August 7th and 8th leading to the death of Dean. Another witness testified his experience at the hands of Dean. Uh, oh, it was Billy Reidinger. I almost completely forgot about him. After listening to over six hours of testimony from various people on August 14th, the jury initially indicted Henley on three counts of murder and Brooks on one. Bail for each was set at $100,000. The DA requested that Henley undergo a psychiatric examination to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial, but his attorney, James, I'm sorry, Charles Melder, opposed the decision, stating that the move would violate his constitutional rights. By the time the grand jury had completed its investigation, Henley had been indicted for six murders and Brooks for four this time. Henley was not charged with the death of Dean, which was, uh, which prosecutors ruled on September 18th was committed in self-defense, because it, it damn sure was. Elmer Henley and David Owen Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders. Henley was brought to trial in San Antonio on July 1st of, 1st of 1970. First? July 1st? Y'all didn't know? Uh, <laughs> charged with six murders committed between March 1972. Hey, y'all know it's almost November 1st? 
uh, in July of 1973, the prosecution called dozens of witnesses, including Curley and Reidinger. Reidinger testified that at Dean's home, he was tied to the torture board and assaulted by Dean before he was released. Other incriminating testimony came from the police officers who read from Henley's written statements. In one part of the confession, Henley described luring two of the victims for whose murder he had been brought to trial, Cobble and Jones, to Dean's Pasadena residence. Henley had confessed that after their initial abuse and torture, Cobble and Jones each had one wrist and ankle bound to the same side of the board. The youths were then forced by Coral. Okay, I'm sorry. He did this to two different boys. Then he did this to the brothers and he did this to Cobble and Jones. He forced them to fight each other with the promise that if one beat the other to death, he would allow the other to live. After several hours, Jones was tied to a board and forced to watch Cobble again be assaulted uh, before he was shot to death. And then he himself was raped and tortured and all that terrible stuff. Uh, the two were ultimately killed on July 27, 1973, two days after they had been reported missing. Several of the victim's parents had to leave the courtroom to regain their composure as police and medical examiners described how their relatives were tortured and murdered. Of course they did. You don't want to hear about this having happened to your children, especially after knowing that the cops fucking didn't do anything about it all this time. Right. Throughout the trial, the state introduced 82 pieces of evidence, including uh, Dean's torture board and one of the boxes used to transport the victims. Inside the box were police found hair, which examiners had concluded came from both Cobble and Henley. Upon advice from his defense counsel, Henley did not take the stand to testify. His attorney, Will Gray, cross-examined several witnesses but did not call any witnesses or experts for defense. On July 15th of 74, both counsels presented their closing arguments. The prosecution sleep. Bleh. The prosecution. I literally almost like tied both of those words in together and made a whole word that wouldn't have made <laughs> the, any sense. Whatsoever. I really like prosecution. It would have been like prosecution. <laughs> like I was literally about to just like both of those words. Becky broke just officially uh, I, just broke both words were just the like prosecution. i was like what is this this isn't a word yes it is there's two words there uh they wanted life imprisonment which again i think they just wanted somebody to blame so fucking bad because dean coral was such a horrible fucking person and these crimes were so unbelievable and even though they knew deep down that Henley and Brooks were ultimately victims themselves, they just wanted somebody to blame and somebody to to pay. They just wanted somebody to pay. Even, even if Henley was more involved than Brooks was, they still were victims, but they just wanted somebody to pay for it. The defense verdict of not guilty and his closing argument to the jury, the DA, Carol Vance, apologized for not being able to seek the death penalty, adding that the case was the most extreme example of a man's inhumanity I have ever seen. The jury deliberated for 92 minutes before finding Henley guilty of all six murders for which he was tried. The following day, on July 16th, formal procedures to sentence Henley for the six guilty verdicts began, and on August 8th, Judge Preston Dial ordered that Henley serve 99 consecutive years. This was a total of 594 years. So a 99-year sentence consecutively is a total of 594 years. He's got 99 years and a bitch ain't one. Oh, my God. He was transferred to the Huntsville unit to formally begin his sentence. Not one at all. 
Uh, Henley did appeal his sentence and conviction, contending that the jury in his initial trial had not been sequestered. Uh, his attorney's objections to news media being present in the courtroom had been overruled, inciting that the defense team's attempts to present evidence contending that the initial trial should not have been held in San Antonio had also been overruled. Henley's appeal was upheld, and he was awarded a retrial in 78. His retrial began, began in, June of eight, in June of 1979. This second trial was held in Corpus Christi. I guess they just keep moving it around because, you know, they don't want to have like juror misconduct um henley again was represented by will gray and ed pagolo pagolo one or the other his attorneys again attempted to have him or his written statements rather ruled inadmissible however judge noah kennedy ruled that the statements given by henley on august 9th of 73 were admissible the retrial lasted nine days with henley's attorneys again calling no defense witnesses and again, tacking the credibility of Henry's written confession. The defense also stated that the evidence provided by the state belonged to Dean and not Elmer Henley. On June 27th of 79, the jury deliberated for over two hours before reaching the verdict of uh, Henley again being convicted of six murders and sentenced to six concurrent 99-year terms. Again, they just they his lawyers tried to argue that this evidence was against Dean, but Dean wasn't there. Elmer was, and somebody had to pay. Bottom line, Brooks was brought to trial on February twenty seventh of nineteen seventy five. He had been indicted for four of the murders committed between December of nineteen seventy and June of seventy three, but was brought to trial charged only with the June seventy three murder of fifteen year old William Lawrence. Brooks's attorney Jim Skelton argued that his client had not committed any murders, attempted to portray Dean and to a lesser degree Henley as being the active participants in the actual murders. Assistant DA Tommy Dunn dismissed defense's contention outright, at one point telling the jury the defendant was in on this killing, the murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader and nothing else, and that's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it. Brooks's trial lasted less than a week. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before they reached their verdict, and he was found guilty of Lawrence's murder on March 4th of 75 and sentenced to a life imprisonment. Brooks showed no emotion, although his wife burst into tears. Brooks also appealed his sentence, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without him being informed of his legal rights, but his appeal was dismissed in May of 1979. Henley is still serving a life sentence at the Mark W. Michael unit in Anderson County, Texas. Uh, I believe he is 64 years old right now. Um, he has also given several prison interviews, uh, not many in recent years, but I do remember some from like the 90s. Um, you know, and, and later in life, he's very remorseful for what he did. He contends that he was a victim himself, that he firmly believes that Dean would have, that Dean was raping him during this time and that he was definitely going to be dead if he didn't do this and just brainwashing brainwashing grooming you don't know what else to do you want to protect it just so much he was a child it's just terrible um but now here's the kicker and i did mention this last week going into this episode uh part of another reason why i did do, wanted to do this episode on top of dean being known as the candy man was that uh, Brooks actually died this past year. Uh, David Owen Brooks died of coronavirus. He was moved to Terrell Unit near Rocheron, Texas, 
prior to his death at a Galveston hospital on May 28th of this year. So he just recently passed away and his death was ruled as a uh, coronavirus related. Coronavirus. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're not going to go into a lot of detail ultimately of every single victim. When we kind of went over the murders, we obviously named the majority of the victims. It, it's horrifying what happened to them. It, it and possibly, so there may have at some point been a potential association with the ring. There was an investigati investigation done in March of 1975 when the Houston Police Department found a um, cache of pornographic pictures and films depicting young boys. Uh, 16 of the individuals depicted within the films and photos, 11 of the youths appeared to be among Dean's known victims who had been identified by this date. So this discovery was disturbing because it might have actually given some credence to the story that Henley and Brooks told about this organization based in Dallas, Texas. Um, there's still no conclusive evidence to suggest that Dean had ever solicited any of his victims in this matter, not only because the Houston Police Department chose not to pursue this possibility, but also because neither Brooks nor Henley ever mentioned actually meeting anybody that was a part of this organization. This was just something Dean told them. In addition to this, they never mentioned having filmed or photographed any, any of the uh, uh, victims. And the arrest in Santa Clara, however, indicate a possible validity in the Brooks statements that police to police that Dean had informed him that his earliest murder victims had actually been buried in California. So in Santa Clara, California, in 1975, there was an arrest of five individuals um, in regards to this uh, pornographic cache that they found in and around Houston Heights. So they think there possibly was a connection because Brooks uh, stated that Dean had told him that his earliest murders actually happened in California. So that's a possible connection to a ring, but still we don't know. This could have been all a bunch of bullshit that Dean was telling these boys. Um, not that these child sex rings don't exist and they haven't existed for years, but um, something that should be notated about one of the potential victims. So on top of the Candyman thing, when I originally found out about Dean Coral, it came across um, possibly on Instagram but a Polaroid picture, and this is a extremely disturbing picture of a really young boy that's kind of down on his stomach, looking up at the camera. If you guys look on Wikipedia, you can find the picture. And right next to him is a toolbox filled with God knows what. A lot of it's similar to a lot of the things that Coral used for torture devices. But this picture was found in February of 2012. There was actually a, a uh, film director, an indie film director, that was interested in, in the case and had visited uh, Henley's mother. And in a box of possessions of Henley's that were stored since his arrest in 73, this Polaroid picture was found. It depicts a blonde-haired teenage youth in handcuffs strapped to an undepicted device upon Dean Coral's floor alongside a toolbox containing the various instruments, as I mentioned, that he used to torture his victims. The individual depicted has been ruled out by the Harris County Medical, Medical Examiner as being any of his known victims, including his one remaining known unidentified victim. Henley himself stated that the picture 
must have been taken after he acquired a Polaroid camera in 1972, although he is adamant that he doesn't know who the boy is. Given that Henley became acquainted with Dean in 72, it is likely that the boy would have been killed between 1972 and 1973. So this was actually later on, even though, like we said, when the sex trafficking ring was mentioned, uh, Henley and Brooks both said that none of the victims were ever photographed or videotaped. But then we find this picture in 2012 and still to this day, they have no idea who this boy is. The so picture crazy. is still out there. It's still been investigated, but nobody has claimed nobody has come forward to say who this boy was, which is just horrible because if it was in 1973, there's still some, family out there i would imagine somebody that would be alive that would be able to identify him but yeah that's that's it that's enough actually i i'm pretty sure we can put a pin in that and call it a night on dean fucking coral the candy man killer piece of shit hot garbage hope he's burning in hell for all eternity anyway. oh, i'm sure he is um yeah wow that was a lot hey it's bam <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we hope we could add some comic uh, relief in this. I had such a hard time researching this. This, this one, one, this one was a hard. This one was hard. rough. It, like it, it, we've it. done so many true crime episodes with serial killers that are just absolutely horrific. Ted Bundy left a lasting on me. Gacy left a lasting and one on me. But this one just creeped. It just. It was creeped me the fuck out it was fucking awful the police department in that time failed every single one of these families fuck dean coral and somewhere dishonor dean... on you dishonor on your cow dishonor on your candy <laughs> fuck you and i God. just still deep within my heart i i feel sorry for henley and brooks and i know there's going to be opinions on that I know not everybody is going to agree with me because of their participations, um, but... They were also trained as kids. Also, guys, you have to remember something. Back in, <coughs> back in the early 70s, if you made $100 a week at a job, that was considered a lot of money. So the fact that he was paying each one of these young boys $200... That's a lot of fucking money. That's back probably then. like around a grand. No. Yeah. Oh god, I'm sorry. And you're telling 13-year-old boys, "Hey, I'll pay you close to a grand." You know, for a body and they're like, oh, "Okay." You know, they don't and then they later find out what he's doing, they're like, "Well, fuck, we don't want to end up like that." So let's just, you know, but really it was the police department. It was the police department that failed. They failed these fucking families. Especially after the tip they got. Then and they then, just kind of were like, nur, 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 whatever. Yeah, we didn't see anything because we don't care. But ultimately, you know, when it came down to it and they found out what happened, people wanted justice. And Dean Coral was not there to be served justice. But who was? These two unwilling accomplices. And... Yeah, I mean, life sentences, I don't know. Uh, you know, they were old. Henley's in his 60s. And yeah, it's just a terrible story. It's sad all the way around. But I I can say for sure, 110%, that I'm glad fucking Dean Coral is dead. Yeah. Because he would have kept doing it. He deserved the death he got. He would have kept doing it. And he deserved the death he got. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, guys, next week's going to be a lot happier. <laughs> um, it is. It's We're going to talk about boo scary houses. Let me try that again. Boo haunted places, but haunted places that are actually haunted. Yes. So, like, perfect example is Waverly Hills. Waverly Hills is haunted, but they also do an attraction every Halloween. Um, actually, the Reformatory does it, too. Yep. Um, so we're going to talk about some places that are haunted attractions and also actually haunted, which I'm really excited about. And of course, what I would actually really like to do is try to find as much information as I can to tell you guys, like, if they're open, if they're not open, what exactly is going on, even though by that time... It'll be like four days till Halloween. So <laughs> I can give you guys one input, just one. I did find out because this is going to be on the list. I did find out that Penhurst Asylum is still having their haunted house this year. And their theme that they're doing looks really fucking awesome. I like how they're kind of taking this whole coronavirus thing and kind of adding that as an implement. It's kind of a perfect it. year to do that. It, it, it is, you know, you're, you're, it's a terrible thing, and and nobody's making light of it by any no, means. No, but, no, absolutely but, not. You know, we, you, you, it's to incorporate it in a way that is safe but still able to enjoy Halloween. I, I just, I appreciated that, and it, and it makes it scary, but in a, in a fun spoopy way. <laughs> it's a fun spoop. Haunted houses are fun spoop. I enjoy fun they spoop. Are. Actually, fun spoop. real haunted houses are fun spoop, and they're fun spoop too. Like people. Oh, God. People ask me all the time, they're like, how do you, how are you not scared of ghosts? And I'm like, don't get me wrong. I get caught off guard sometimes. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, no, but. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, you enjoy roller coasters? I enjoy being touched by spirits. You know, it's just, it's just a thing. That's my adrenaline high right there. Yep. I'd rather a ghost jump out than a spider. And I'm not even, like, really scared of spiders, but I would much rather see a ghost than a spider. I know to a lot of people, that's, that's like, what? It's still on my bucket list to see a full-bodied apparition, and I'm telling you guys, it's going to happen to me when I least expect it, and I'm going to throw my body. Like, we're, like, just... I've... (laughs) Close. Yeah, you got very close at the reformatory. Pretty close. But anyway, so we're super excited to talk about that next week guys and talk about some spoops before the big spoop of next saturday um you guys i did a poll for the movie that you want reviewed tomorrow and it always surprises me what movie gets picked i don't know why it does but i'm always like suspectful that it's going to be something and then it's not uh you guys picked blair witch project which i'm kind of <laughs> super excited about not gonna lie because yeah (laughs) we love that movie so much and actually i went to a friend's last night to carve pumpkins we carved pumpkins while that movie was on in the background and i also had my halloween playlist on spotify going it was the most perfect moment in halloween history pretty spooky night um but yeah so i will be reviewing blair witch tomorrow again sorry about not having one last week but definitely we'll have one tomorrow and now a word from our sponsor Calm your body down. Spooky, spooky skeletons. <laughs> Can we talk about last week, though, how, like, literally everything, like, I forgot to post Black Lives Matter Monday, and, like, I just, because I, because I really, in all honesty, thought last Tuesday was Monday. 
I forgot so I was to gonna post it yesterday. I was gonna post it on Tuesday, and people would have been like, "Bitch, it's not Monday." It's I forgot Tuesday. to post the poll yesterday, so I was like, "Fuck it, I'll do it today." And then yep. today, and it got more votes today than they normally do on Tuesday. So I'm all I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, <laughs> we'll get it together at some point eventually. So guys, spooky skeletons, the bloody skulls. They will be gone after Halloween. So you guys need to order, 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 order. You have 10 more days from today at the time of this recording. It is the 21st. You have till Halloween. And after that, no more bloody skulls till next poopy season. Um, the pumpkin spice bath bombs will be here until the end of the year. I always like to keep those through the holidays. Um, the apple cinnamon ones will be up since you guys said on the poll that you wanted those back. Those will be up either tomorrow or Friday. Those will be up on the Etsy shop for sale. Um, and then there's going to be some new uh, holiday-themed ones this year too, guys. So none of that, though, is coming up until next month. I am not even thinking that far ahead, but I'm just letting you guys know that anybody that enjoyed any of the Christmas or holiday ones last year, there are some coming back, but there's also going to be some new ones. So I'm really excited. Um, Again, guys, thank you so much again for all the support. At CURBD is the Instagram. Um, everything is on Etsy. Search Calm Your Body Down or just click on the link in the bio on the Instagram page. Uh, and next year, guys, I'm really going to set on selling everything exclusively just through the website. Um, I was talking to somebody about this earlier Today, uh, eventually at some point, I am going to phase out of Etsy. Um, I'm sure you guys know that Etsy is a really reputable company and they're great for startup small businesses. But at the end of the day, they got to take their cut. And I get it, but I want my money. So <laughs> and she, she works kind of... really hard on these guys. She really does. And she deserves she deserves that. She she really does. Like I've, I've seen yeah. her process at one point and I was like. Wow. It's a lot. And now it's I have a lot. to do and it's I have to do anymore and it's just a lot. So yeah, I um I really want to buckle down and really make it serious about this business and sell on my own without any third party present. And uh, you know, that way I can kind of be a little bit easier with you guys on like fees and stuff and just kind of make it a really easy transition flow with customers. Um, but again, thanks guys. Buy up those skulls before Halloween. Um, new stuff is coming soon. Keep uh, liking the Instagram and following and all that good stuff. So thanks. Spooky, scary skeletons. <laughs> I never get tired of that. They've been playing all the. They've been playing the Thirty One Days of Halloween on ABC Family. I know it's free form now, but I it's still call ABC it ABC Family because it is. Yep. And uh, every commercial they play that, and I never get tired of it. How could you? You're not a true Halloween. You're not if you get sick of that song. <laughs> um. All right, guys, so follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Don't Fuck With The Original. Make sure to spell it out with the apostrophe or you will not find us. We're on Inst... I just said that. We're on iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Give us a follow. Give us a, re a review. Um, subscribe so you always know when our episodes come out. If you like to give us a comment, just say hey or whatever you would like to say because we can take it. Email us at dfwto8493 at gmail.com. All right. Guys, seriously, please keep going over to Spotify and iTunes. Uh, we have 10 reviews on raiders. iTunes now. Fuck! Yes! We hit 4.6 at 10 reviews, baby.
Thank you guys. We appreciate it. Thank you guys. It we all starts it. small. It all starts small. It does. We appreciate you guys so much. Stay safe out there. Wear your masks. Wear it over your fucking nose. And for the love of God, vote. I know this has been pushed down everybody's <laughs> throat so hard, and I don't want to make it any harder on you, but I'm telling on I'm telling you guys already know who we're voting for, duh. And um well, yeah. I want to make America great again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Hearing that come out of a lesbian's mouth. <laughs> I don't even know how to process that right now. Even like, I, I cannot she's process. Even I know she's joking. But, um, you know, when I hear people say that they just flat out aren't going to vote, it makes me very, very, very sad. Just vote. It is something that we need to exercise a right to. Uh, we need to save democracy at the end of the day. Uh, it's, it's, democracy is failing. It's failing. Um, I encourage, I'm, I'm just going to leave everybody with this. I encourage everybody to listen to the recent speech that Sasha Baron Cohen released. Please, I employ, implore all of you to bring back democracy in this country, to save democracy in this country, to bring us back together unified and vote. Just vote. Please. And wear a fucking mask. Thank wear you. a fucking mask. <laughs>